The views, opinions, and advice in this podcast are not necessarily those of our employers. Medical topics are discussed largely using best EMS protocols. Discussions here should not replace your own services, policies, and procedures. Hey guys, uh, welcome back to the PCHD EMS podcast. I'm here with our medical directors, Dr. Northheim and Dr. Bertrand. We're going to be going over several different topics, and we're going to kind of split this up into a few different episodes just because it would be too much to go over in one so, um, Dr. Northheim, start us off. Yeah, so I guess the first uh, pearl we're going to talk about today is kind of what we're seeing come in the emergency department from multiple different agencies. And I, I think one thing that we have um, a lot of questions about is, you know, when, when do we pull the trigger on pace, uh, pacing somebody? When do we pull the trigger on cardioversion? We all hear unstable, stable, right? And I think the, the biggest thing for those patients that we may see on the monitor blinking at 32, 32, 32, and we get a pressure back and the pressure is normal, the patient's perfusing, you know, we don't need to take the next step on those patients. It's better just to sit and watch and wait. Obviously, getting a manual blood pressure is super important with those patients to make sure that it is actually true. But we're kind of moving away from some of the symptomatic um, uh, portions of the tachy and Brady and when to intervene with electricity and really getting down to um, is the patient stable um, truly with a blood pressure standpoint, right? And so uh, manual blood pressures are very important. Um, I kind of break this down and, and kind of on the fire side is, you know, you've got somebody in a house fire with a, with a hose line and, you know, they're coming off the ground with pressure. The last thing they would do is call back out to the, to the engineer and say, hey, you know, turn my pump pressure up. The body's really the same way. So if the patient's perfusing, they don't have altered mental status, their blood pressure is stable, we probably don't need to intervene with electricity. And we'll see cases come in the ED all the time where the crews are very worried about a certain heart rate, it's blinking, it's abnormal, but the patient really is asymptomatic, they're, they're awake and alert. And you know, even if these people do need a pacemaker later on down the road, many times that's hours to a couple days later um, that these people are actually getting that because what we'll do is we'll hold their beta blocker you know, we'll check thyroid numbers, maybe it's metabolic, try to get down to the bottom of it, but very few of these patients are actually going emergently to get a pacemaker. So I think that's a, a good clinical pearl. I think we see that a lot. And I think that the whole point of this episode today is really um, when we see EMS come in and, and, and we'll talk through it with the crews so they understand it, but I, I think we see that a lot. Yeah, I agree. And we get it from nurses in the emergency department also that are really worried about a patient's pulse in the low 40s but their blood pressure is 130 and we just try and reassure them that they're perfusing they're going to be fine there's no intervention needed now and like you said they may need a pacemaker later at some point but it's exceedingly rare that we actually have to place an emergency pacemaker now it happens but probably two times in the last year or two have I had a patient go emergently to the cath lab to have a pacemaker placed oh. Right. I mean, we can't reiterate enough. Same thing happens in the emergency department where, you know, they come in and say, oh my gosh, Dr. North, I'm Dr. Bertrand, our pressure is 70 and the patient's, you know, eating a sandwich. So, you know, we do a really good job, I think, um, at PCHD and our and the other agencies within Best EMS of getting a manual blood pressure. We have them easily accessible. Um, I would say that continue to get it. If you don't believe the blood pressure, get a manual blood pressure. 
Um, there, there's a lot. I mean, cuff size a big deal. Movement while taking a blood pressure. Um, sometimes the hoses from the automated blood pressure are on the floor of the truck. The truck's moving. It's bumping around. I mean, you can have a pressure that's 30 to 40 millimeters of mercury different um, based on some of those items. Over clothing, over jackets. And so we'll routinely in the ED say, hey, please go get a manual, right? If it's abnormal, come back to me. But um, I, I think we see that a lot. And I think that's a really good lesson for EMS as well. We've, we've gotten much better at, uh, instead of just pushing the button again until it gets us a reading, um, hey, it, 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 it timed out, guys. Like, they look like crap. It timed out. Let's get a manual blood pressure right now. Like, we don't need to just keep hitting that NIBP button until right. it gives us a number right. we like, you know. All right. It's yeah. an easy thing to do, but especially if you don't believe it, right? Yeah. If, you, if someone's altered um, and, and, you know, they've got a normal blood pressure, probably a good idea to get a manual, right? Yeah. Or if you get a super high or super low blood pressure, probably really good to confirm it. Because even with confirming, I mean, sometimes it's 10, 20, 30 millimeters off. And I, I think that makes a difference if you're going to intervene on that patient. So that, that was kind of our first clinical pearl for, to, for today that we want to talk about that we felt would, would benefit those um, out in the streets. So don't believe the 174 over, 40, over 140 blood pressure. Oh, uh, we, ha we have that in the emergency department all the time. We'll have uh, 165 over 154, right? And that's documented in the chart. And we know that's, we know that's not right. And, and it gets documented. So even the most expensive monitors, even the emergency departments, we'll, we'll give you those numbers. So taking that extra step and, and, you know, actually getting the manual is very important. And also don't believe the blood pressure of 70 over 35, if the previous three blood pressures have been 150 over 92. And then all of a sudden, and the patient looks the same because we get that also. Right. And it's like, what's well, one blood pressure? Did you check it again? Well, no. Well, maybe we should recycle and get a manual um, and confirm that it's really hypotensive. Most of the time, it is not. Right. And our, our, we've, we've seen so many times where we've checked it manually and it's been so far off. Our guys have really gotten on board like, hey, we need to be doing this every time. So, right. yeah. um, so you, were, you were saying, you know, basically removing electricity from the, from the therapies unless they're super unstable, but obviously you're still talking about giving um, epi push dose, epi drip. Yeah, but even with those patients, right? So, I mean, if they're still normal tensive, we see that a lot. Oh my gosh, the heart rate was 32 and, and the blood pressure is normal. We confirm that it was normal. We're giving atropine, right? What, what are we trying to accomplish with that medication intervention or with electrical intervention, right? So I would say just don't do anything if the patient's perfusing because right. ultimately with the medications, we're trying to increase heart rate to actually make the patient perfuse better. Well, if the patient's already perfusing, right? And a lot of these patients yeah. are hypertensive. They're 180 confirmed and we're, you know, we have crews giving atropine just because they're uncomfortable with the monitor blinking yes. 35. And like the moral of the story is we're, we're, we're better to do nothing, yeah. right? Than to intervene on a patient whose blood pressure is normal and they're maintaining. You know? Have a goal, have, have something you're actually trying to achieve other than you're just being more comfortable. Right. Yeah, I like it. All right, so the next topic we wanted to talk about was kind of treating the narrow complex tachycardia in patients and taking into consideration their history and their age on this issue, okay? So we see a lot of patients come in and they might be 60, 65, 70. They have a narrow complex tachycardia with a rate anywhere between 130 and 170. And we're seeing that being treated as suspected SVT and they're given adenosine. So it's exceedingly rare that you would develop SVT after age 45 or 50. That's usually something most people develop in their 
teens, certainly by the early 20s, they've had their first episode of SVT. And so if you're seeing someone over the age of 45 or 50 with new onset, narrow complex tachycardia, more than likely that's gonna be either atrial fibrillation, atrial flutter, some kind of um, atrial dysrhythmia like that, not SVT. So <clears throat> we, in that case, recommend cardizem. And even if it is SVT, is a good drug for that also. Now, I've had some cases recently, and I have some examples here, where I've had, um, my, the first example I have is a patient who was 64 years old, really healthy guy, has had just a rate of 130 to 150 that he's been getting on his Apple Watch for the last four days. No history of SVT, no history of any heart problems. He comes in, and initially when I looked at the EKG, I thought it was just a sinus tachycardia. Um, and so I went ahead and gave him a liter of fluid, and then I noticed like an hour later, he was at 138, and he stayed at 138 consistently. Wow. And so that made me go look at it again, reevaluate, and now I looked at the EKG, and I was like, you know, it kind of looks like it could be flutter. The guy was, even after the liter of fluid, was still running a pressure about 95 or so. So I went ahead and gave him a dose of amiodarone, and after about 15 minutes, you could obviously see it had slowed him down, and now you could see he was in a flutter with a variable block. And before, he was obviously in a flutter with a two-to-one block. How old was he? 64. 64. Yes. Um, the next thing I had was an 87-year-old male who was really healthy 87-year-old. No medications, no history. He came in uh, by EMS with a heart rate of about 180. And he initially was given adenosine. They suspected SVT in the field. He slowed down a little bit, but it went back immediately to the 170s, 180s. He, again, was somewhat hypotensive. He was like in the lower 90s, and so gave him liter fluid also, really didn't improve his pressure any. And so I was a little leery about giving him cardizem. So again, I went with amiodarone. After one, day, one dose of amiodarone, he completely converted back into normal sinus rhythm, and he went home. So. Yeah, so in our protocols, we use, uh, use cardizem. You know, if their pressure's over 110, we feel pretty comfortable using cardizem, probably a lower dose, right? Um, those kind of borderline pressures between 90 and 110, as long as someone's all you know doesn't have altered mental status, awake and alert, that's where we kind of go amio. I think the moral of the story here is, you know, even if it is SVT, cardizem is completely safe. And there was a study that they did where, you know, it really showed the conversion rates of cardizem versus adenosine for um, SVT. And although cardizem took a little bit longer for the patient to convert, it still worked, right? And right. so if we're talking about a stable, narrow complex tachycardia, it doesn't really matter that it takes an extra few minutes for them to convert. And most people, you know, you may have the 28-year-old that's had adenosine multiple times who's, please don't give me that drug. I hate getting that drug. I feel like I'm going to die. Those patients are actually completely safe to get cardizem. Is it going to take a little bit longer? Sure, but they're a lot more comfortable. So I think the moral of the story is, you know, we used to kind of learn, hey, give adenosine, it slows them down. You can see flutter or see fib, and that's going to go back up and give cardizem. I think the moral story here is it's very rare to have SVT over 45 years old if someone's never had SVT history. And if you're not going to hurt them with cardizem, what, you know, why not go that route? And so I think that's a good pearl that we've been teaching and, and having our protocols and, and really been kind of hitting hard. But we do see that routinely in the emergency department. I think the other piece, too, is we have a lot of people that are in chronic AFib. Well, what happens to somebody in chronic AFib that gets a fever or becomes septic or becomes dehydrated? They're going to get RVR. Right? And so we see a lot of people kind of going right to cardizem with those patients when, you know, like Skipper said in his two cases, 
I mean, he went with fluids because he thought, hey, maybe there's, you know, maybe we need to fill the tank a little bit first. And a lot of those chronic AFibbers that have now become AFib RVRs because they've dried out or become septic, not eating or drinking, filler to thrive, a lot of them will get better with fluids as well. So that's another good point to, uh, for us to, to look at. This has been an episode of the PCHD EMS podcast. Thank you for joining us.